Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort. Or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Today we are talking to Christopher Kant. There's no way to say this easily, so I'll just say it. This episode is going to blow your mind. You might not agree with everything you hear, but I promise you it's going to be very interesting. Before we did this interview, I was making some social media announcements about the upcoming interview, and I referred to the projects that Christopher is working on as cutting edge. Later, Christopher gave me a bit of ribbing for describing it that way, but it's not just hyperbole. I think it's accurate. For instance, it's not unlikely you've heard of blockchain, but have you heard about how artists are using it to sell their art? And of course you know about blogging, but when was the last time you heard about a step-by-step process to write a blog that actually makes money? And Pinterest? Well, who knew that that was for anything but hoarding pictures and selling shoes? We're going to talk about all of these things and how Christopher is using them in ways that are actually making him money. It's not that Christopher invented these tools, but he's unique amongst the artists I know in how much work he has done in researching them and getting them to work for him. The tools he discusses are innovative opportunities for artists and offer revenue streams that are outside the typical and predictable silos. So please, have a listen. Thank you so much for being here, man. Um, Really appreciate you giving us the time. It's great to see you. I feel like you've been this uh, screen name for so long. Uh, it's it's really great to be actually be yeah. talking to you in person. Yeah, it's cool to see you guys. Well, I see you on the on your podcast, which I watch diligently every single weekend. But yeah, it's cool. To talk. I've never actually spoken to you person to person, man to man. <laughs> no, it's been a while. Um, but let's bring everybody else up to speed on who you are. Uh, tell us just briefly a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got sucked in and swallowed whole by the art monster. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't know if you guys know, uh, I was actually, I was born in the Falkland islands. So that's where I, that's my right going back a lot of years. Um, I feel like that's relevant because it did mean that I spent quite a lot of time drawing and doing things like I was really into Warhammer. Uh, Watching films, Dark Crystal, that was a big one for me. I don't know if you guys know the Dark Crystal. Mm. Um, yeah, so I spent a lot of time nerding out. I remember reading, there's the, the Belgariad by David Eddings. That was a huge series for me. That's like Lord of the Rings for, for early teens. Um, yeah, so I think I got sucked in at a really early age. That was the creative stuff, but where about the uh, technical know-how? Where did where did you start with that? Yeah, the actual pen to paper. 
Right. Well, okay. So, I mean, how it went for me, I, I did, I did well art GCSEs, but I also did really well. Mathematics was like something I was awesome at as well. I wouldn't say I was awesome at art, but I was really good at math and I was pretty good at art. So I went on to college, uh, you know, 16 to 18, I guess you guys would call that high school. Um, and I did, what was it? Maths, physics, fine art, and product design. And fine art, it was not what I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be illustration. But I don't remember actually doing any studying of, of any fundamentals. <laughs> I remember it was kind of like, do what you want, and then write an essay afterwards where you justify what you've just done with some clever writing. That's kind of how I felt. I didn't really understand what it wanted from me. So I didn't do very well at college in fine art, but I did really well with maths and product design and physics. So then I decided I would go on to uni and tell with the art thing because I didn't get it. And I did computer science. But halfway through, halfway through doing computer science, I realized I made a huge mistake. Uh, and I started looking into, into the art thing seriously. And that's when I came across, like, I really dove into, like, deviant art for the first time. I'd, never, I'd heard of it, but I'd never really looked at it. This would be, like, 2009, um, halfway through my degree in computer science. I'm diving into deviant art, and I come across Dave Raposa and Dan Luvisi. They were the two. And they, they were just starting to, like, yeah, uh, do some awesome things. Um, and Dave Raposa was starting up his Crimson Daggers study group that had been around. I think it was starting right as I started, sort of found him. And he was streaming, uh, on, I think it was livestream.com. I don't know if you guys remember that site. It was a really old one. Uh, I think it was livestream.com. Yeah, that was, I think, uh, Sam Peterson and like uh, John Silva and Forrest Emil were on that back in the day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I was kind of lurking. I remember seeing John Silver. I don't. I don't think. I don't think I was lurking at the same time. Forrest got into things a bit. I don't know. His name started popping up a lot. Eventually, especially I remember his name popping up on Imagine FX forums. I remember spotting Forrest on the Imagine FX forums. Oh, Royce even streamed on Livestream.com. Huh. Um. Yeah, so I came across Dave, and that's when I realized, like, I've been looking at, you know, the fine art. I think doing fine art at college really sort of messed up my perceptions of what a career in art would, would look like. I never put it together that the, the guys doing the illustrations in Warhammer books were, that was their career. Um, but then once I found Dave and I found all these people grinding towards it as a career, I thought, yeah, it suddenly all clicked. I thought, this, oh, people do that. People do this for a living. Um, so yeah, I finished my, while I was scraping by my computer science degree, like literally just doing the bare minimum I needed to do, um, I decided to put the rest of my time into grinding the same stuff that they were grinding in the Crimson Daggers, like Andrew Loomis PDFs, uh, they were, they were big, um, man, master studies, tons of master studies. Did a load of that. Um, yeah, and I, I was just modeling those guys. Is the, I didn't have any other advice. 
And what about for the business angle? Uh, when did you start making money? When was it your primary uh, breadwinning from from art when you switched over from eventually from uh, computer science? Well, that took quite a bit of time. So um, when did I finish? I think 20, 2012, I think I finished my degree. And from then until twenty, at the end of 2013, I was just... I didn't know what I was doing. Unemployment for a bit, temporary jobs, bumbling around. Didn't really know what I was doing, and I was still practicing my art, but I just I wasn't good enough to get any sort of work. Um, and then an IT job came up back in the Falklands, um, so I I went and I applied for that, and I got it. So I went and did IT for two years, roughly, in the Falkland Islands. The whole time I was, you know, wishing I was. Uh, working as an artist but i was trying to improve and that, that those two years did grind on a bit and i i got fed up and oh, there he goes i got i got fed up with the it um and from there i decided to quit my job head back to uk try and do the art thing seriously like build a portfolio like i i, I think i didn't have much confidence for but doing you know, working in IT, it just gave me like, I know I need to, I know what life is like not doing the art thing. And I know I need to be doing the art thing. So now I need to give it a proper shot. So I, yeah, I think end of, end of 2015, back to UK, bumbling around again for about six months, firing off portfolios, not getting anything, trying to do commissions, like however I could find a deviant art job forums, uh, Upwork, just anywhere that I could find for freelancing. Uh, and the, the, I remember the big event that, that came through for me was I, I sent my portfolio to Pox Nora, which were a digital card game. Um, I don't know if some people might have heard of it. Mostly they might have seen the art. It's like, it was like Sony's attempt at the Magic the Gathering. It didn't go well. So then they sold that or something like the, the studio broke, broke free of Sony and they kept that ip with them and they tried to keep it going but anyway so they were doing digital cards and they paid me 900 pounds for two and at that time i was like that's that's okay i could do that you know i could live on that 900 quid for 450 quid it's like 600 dollars for a card i was like if i could get that regularly i could survive uh they didn't give me that regularly but it was the thing that <laughs> that sort of kickstarted me into starting to be able to ask for a bit more money, you know, and be a bit more um, aggressive, I guess, with pursuing opportunities. And then uh, Upwork actually did come through for me for a bit. I met a guy who, he, um, he was doing a, he wanted to do a game project, but he needed concept art and he wanted it to be kind of illustrative he wanted it to look good to show people trying to get some some money invested, basically. So it was kind of like a it was like illustrative concept art idea. He was an amateur. <laughs> he was awesome, uh, but he was you know, he, he was it wasn't like a a big production, you know. But that gave me enough work every month just to scrape by. Um. So that's kind of how it got started. It was Pox Nora, and then that guy on Upwork. And just meeting a few people, places like Upwork, RPG.net forums, Board Game Geek. I met a guy on Board Game Geek and did some board game stuff. Um, 
that's how I kind of got started. Yeah. And the, you know, cold emailing art directors and just trying to get noticed at all. Yeah. So there's one thing where, uh, I'm kind of in the privy to that my, our audience might not know is that you had actually moved to uh, Thailand in order to sustain yourself financially while working as an artist. Uh, could you talk about like how that move happened? Yeah, so because I was scraping by, um, I was like, well, in order to increase what I'm earning, I have to build a better portfolio. I have to build a more cloud, basically. I need to do a lot of things in order to try, you know, to get into the upper echelons of, of pay. Um, or, or I could just move somewhere cheaper. <laughs> and it's like I'm earning more money instantly. Um, so I decided I'm going to do both, but obviously if I move, then that's immediate. Uh, and I started looking at, cause I was in Bristol in UK and right next door is Wales and Wales is much, much cheaper. And that I thought, oh, well, if I'm going to move Wales, that's kind of like moving country. So then and I thought, oh, well, what if I do actually go to Europe? And then I thought, what if I go anywhere? Um, and that led me down the rabbit hole of looking at the nomad, digital nomad thing. Uh, Chiang Mai, Thailand was like just number one over and over again for the, for digital nomads to, to get it. It's, it's like, um, a good standard of living for quite a, it's cost effective. Basically Chiang Mai, Thailand is really cost effective. Uh, and so, yeah, I moved, I moved there. I was there for three years and I was, I was spending about the same amount of money every month as Bristol, but standard of living was just, I mean, the weather was awesome. The food way nicer didn't have to cook anything ever didn't have to do my laundry ever uh had my own like apartment in the middle of like a really hip neighborhood yeah it was <laughs> yeah it's pretty pop so that's where i first came across you you were streaming on twitch and i had only relatively recently found my way into twitch and and streaming and i was like oh here's a guy that's got it figured out Fucking got this sweet gig in Thailand doing all this like awesome art or, you know, uh, freelance illustration. And I was like, yeah, this is it. This is, this is the model. This guy's got it. And then you threw it all away. <laughs> Things changed. Um, at, at, I'll fast forward a little bit from when I, cause you were streaming for quite a while on Twitch. Um, so jumping yeah. ahead, you stopped streaming and you started getting into some new territory. Um, can you talk about that for a little bit? What have you been doing since you stopped streaming and you also kind of, you stepped away from like commissions and are you still doing freelance illustration in any way? I, I, I still pay my bills mostly with, with commissions. Yeah. Okay. Um, a lot of D and D repeat clients, um, yeah, I still try to minimize my bills as much as possible because that gives me the space to to work on these things that, are, that I'm working on at the moment. Um, yeah, so the two main things, well, the main, the first thing I jumped into was the blog, but I know you want to talk about that later. Um, something I've been recently looking at is, is the crypto out there. Yeah, we want to talk about both because... Um, they're both very interesting things, uh, the blogging and the blockchain. Um, uh, you, and so you've gone down the road quite a bit 
uh, it's relatively new by your own admission, um, but you've gone further than probably most people that are in our circle are going to, you know, have be familiar with. Um, this idea with blogging is really interesting for a whole set of reasons because people think of blogging as, and they, you know, they they think that that's like a a, a, a dustbin of the internet. That's a dead art. Um, and you convinced me that it's far from it. But the thing that's going to be the least familiar to people is this idea of blockchain. People have this awareness of what it is and uh, Bitcoin inflation. And there's a whole number of things that I think people confuse and conflate with like what the blockchain is and like, and what it does. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the fact that it now has a connection to art is then another layer of um, obscurity. People- yeah, people are kind of comparing it with the traditional fine art market, which I think a lot of freelancers, especially entertainment industry, making art, you know, that has to meet certain sort of parameters. Um, a lot of people don't quite, they think it's this is some sort of uh, money laundering scheme. Right. Yeah. So let to start with, let's do like a quick crash course, if we can, on like, what is blockchain? I think that's the first thing that we need to kind of underscore and get clear. Okay, I'm going to have to do my best as a as a bit of a layman, um, trying to put this in. I've been doing, you know, I've been really submerging myself for about a month, but I had gone into crypto. I tried it in 2017. You remember when that crazy bull run happened and just Bitcoin just rocketed up? Because I was in Chiang Mai at the time, and I was surrounded by people who were in crypto, and they've been in crypto for years. Um, I was actually rubbing shoulders with some crypto millionaires and I had no idea. Um, only found out after the fact. So I do have a little bit, a little bit of knowledge about it. So I think the best way, if you're familiar with torrenting, if anyone's ever torrented a file before, uh, you torrent, you torrent. I think that's, that's quite similar to a blockchain. Because how how torrenting works is you is it's it's like decentralized file sharing. Uh, the file is hosted on multiple people's computers. They're all acting as seeds and they're passing this file around between them. People peers are interacting with those seeds in order to get the file. And a blockchain works kind of similarly. You have it, it's a it's a network of computers, and each one. Is kind of like a seed in torrenting. Um, so, I'm not sure if that does that does that help anybody. <laughs> yeah, and if the NSA is listening, I just want them to know that I have never illegally torrented. downloaded or torrented anything. Uh, I just met this guy Chris uh, five minutes ago. I don't know what he's talking about. But seriously, though, uh, even Blizzard Entertainment uses torrenting to uh, share the patch downloads, so it's no longer a centralized right. download. It's so, a, yeah, exactly. Distributed, um, but for, in this case, it's uh, the distribution is the uh, keeping track of identity for for the uh, who owns the Bitcoin, for example. Right, it's not just sharing the Bitcoin through everybody sharing it. It's tr- keeping track of who has what Bitcoin. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. On a, with torrenting, there is no ownership of of said torrent. 
Whereas on a, a blockchain, you can track you can track ownership, which is what now has happened with with crypto art. The way crypto art is possible is with a thing called a non fungible token, which is an NFT. That's what people call it. Um, and what that is, if you imagine, so if a Bitcoin, okay, <laughs> I'm going to try and explain it. Bitcoin are fungible tokens because one Bitcoin could be exchanged for another Bitcoin. They're the same. They're effectively identical. Um, an NFT could not be, so one piece of art couldn't be swapped for another piece of art. They're not, they're not identical. So, and, and one NFT, one non-fungible token could not be swapped with another non-fungible token. Um, so if you imagine that an NFT is like a Bitcoin of which there is only, it's a Bitcoin, it's like a cryptocurrency of which there's only one. And if you were to mint um, a limited edition of 10 NFTs, that's kind of like a cryptocurrency of which there's only 10. You see what I mean? Um, I think that's the easiest way to think about it. If you imagine it's like a mini currency, it's a mini cryptocurrency that's limited in size. Um, can I can I interrupt you before we go too much further down that? Because there there are a couple of things that I would like to clarify for the sake of the uninitiated audience. Um, that there is a distinction between a coin, like a cryptocurrency, a coin, and the blockchain itself. The, the, the block, it's kind of like all dollar bills are money, but not all money is dollar bills. The, um, so all crypto coins stem from a blockchain, but not all blockchain is like, say, Bitcoin or, or the crypto. And there's many potential, uh, uses for the blockchain structure that has nothing to do with the currency in itself i want i really want to exp uh, um, underscore that explicitly. yes the chain is keeping track of everything and yeah. well in the it, chain it keeps track of anything it doesn't have to keep exactly. track of money it exactly keeps track yeah. of these tokens. The, the the original application was currency but now with this new application nfts has, ar has arisen yeah and it uses the blockchain, but the NFTs are not, they're not literally currency. No. And so this has awesome implications for artists in general. Well, yeah, artists in general, um, but digital artists specifically, I think, or like even like more in particular, digital artists have always sort of confronted this issue of there being like no original, um, you know, a digital copy or a digital file is by definition copyable and therefore it lacks the uh unique thumbprint of an original piece of art now and i'll let you step in again on the taking this up now this kind of like this adds the possibility for digital art to have its own uh uniqueness how are you taking advantage of that how are you how do you see that playing out well, I mean, firstly, I think it should be stressed that this is not just going to work for digital art. If you if you dig just a little bit, you're going to find all there's musicians, there's writers all tying their stuff to an, an NFT. Um, and yeah, you can't, you could, what, how it works is you've got a digital file tied to the NFT. They're, they're sort of bound together. So you could, someone could copy the digital file, but it wouldn't have the NFT attached to it. The, the token attached to it, which is kind of like someone, you know, Pete Moorbacher's Angelarium prints. 
you could get hold of the high res, print one off, but it doesn't have a, it's not signed by him. It doesn't have a certificate of authenticity. So you can't resell that for the kinds of prices that you could probably resell an authentic Angelarian print. And it's sort of, the, it's the same idea, really. It's running on the same idea. Um, so, yeah, I would, I'd say that it's not just art that this is like, this thing is hitting so much stuff. <laughs> there's, there's a project, uh, NBA Top Shot. I don't know if you've come across NBA Top Shot. It's mind blowing. It's kind of like baseball cards, but digitized NBA video clips. And that thing has just skyrocketed. We're talking millions a day in trade volume already. And the thing, it's only been around a couple of months. Uh, that thing is just. Can just, you explain more of, of what that is? Because that, that sounds like it has a, a descriptive value that, that is relevant here. Okay. So basically what NBA Top Shot has done, they, they developed their own blockchain, first of all, which means that they can, it's, it's, yeah, it's not tied to any other cryptocurrencies or anything. Um, and what they've done is they have taken, they've made booster packs, essentially. You pay $9, which was the, the, the price it is for pack now, and you get three little video clips of, of moments that have happened in NBA, like uh, a dunk by LeBron James or, uh, you know, an amazing pass that, God, I don't know, you know, I don't watch, I don't watch NBA. Um, <laughs> right, right. And so you get, when you open a pack, you get three of these random little video clips. Some are much more rare than others. If you want to try and get the first edition out of 1200 for, you know, one particular moment, one particular video clip, that one would be worth more um, to other collectors because it's the, it's the first edition. So what's going on there is you get these little packs and then there's a secondary market on the website where you open these packs, where you get these moments where other collectors, other people are opening the packs are like, Oh, I would like to, I would like to purchase that off you because just like baseball cards, I think some baseball cards go for millions now. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't the be surprised. Ones, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of this, this new age of digital collectors, they can see that eventually these things will be going for millions as well. Um, or that's the hell, at least. It is indeed. And already these things are being sold between collectors for hundreds of thousands. Not uh, the, the, the rarest ones are going for hundreds of thousands. Most be going for like $5. But if it's a, you know, a very high-profile player, it's the first edition of only like a thousand of this, you know, like really massive moment in NBA, those things are going for like thousands. This sounds a lot like gambling to me with a secondary market. So I can't you, imagine. It's speculation. It's in, it's, well, it's, you buy the pack for $9 and you don't know what's in it. It could be worth nothing. Yeah, it's, it's the same it. business model as Magic Gathering. Yeah, the same, packs the same could be said for any other collector's market. It's, there's right, a but this is it. just tied to sports already, which is uh, already gambling <laughs> focused. So <laughs> this is just one more additional rung of gambling on top of... Uh, it, the thing is with uh, with uh, baseball cards, traditional baseball cards you could actually have the physical item now we just have the idea that this token for this video is somehow worth something and it just sounds like a lot of people with a lot of money that are really bored and want to uh find ways to spend their money to sh like show how big their collection is yeah but you've just you, you've described 
water as wet. Like, it's like in some ways, <laughs> I can see. Yeah, I can see what you mean. But um, with a lot of these things, that when you purchase something for a specific, something that's rare for a certain price, that becomes its flaw. That becomes its. That's that's now the price of it. So the next person who wants to buy it up you has to pay more than that. That's how a lot of this sort of investment works. That's how you know you buy a banana taped to a wall. You pay however much that thing went for. If someone wants to buy that banana off the purchaser, they're going to have to pay more money. Uh, if you were to hold that money, the value you know the value of your currency would have gone down. But if you were to purchase a piece of art that money, there's a very good chance that you're going to get more value out of it. So I think a lot of these people, they do have too much money. They've got more money. They're just trying to diversify their portfolios, basically. Yes. They like, are diversify into collectible digital assets. Yeah, the art world is much the same. I mean, like, the, or the argument can be made that there are areas of the art world where, where the same thing is happening. People with too much money are uh, you, sort of like using the art world as a platform to flex. Yeah, so uh, we can get into that a whole lot with Daria. I know she has tons of thoughts on it. She was on the inside with the banana taped to the wall thing. So in a few <laughs> weeks, we can get to her on that. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so there's another area that I would like to investigate a little bit more for clarification. Um, so this idea of a blockchain being a distributed network, um, e even that might be a little bit elusive for some people so this is everybody that is on the network you have a computer you're connected within a network that oversees any given uh blockchain system you have to be on that network for that blockchain and any tokens that are created as a result of that blockchain existing you have to be on that network to take advantage of it is that's correct what do you mean by on on that network you have to have a wallet you need to there's yeah you have to so if you're using the ethereum blockchain which is what a lot of these crypto art platforms used um because it's one of the oldest it's one of the first blockchains with real application it's probably the second most popular blockchain because bitcoin would be the most popular but the application of bitcoin it's hard to find. Ethereum has real application. And yeah, in order to interact with it, um, you need to get a wallet, a crypto wallet, which is a bit like uh, a PayPal account for cryptocurrency. So then, yeah, so then um, if I want to utilize Ethereum or I want to utilize any application that Ethereum is being used for, the Ethereum blockchain, not the Ethereum coin, the Ethereum blockchain, anything that that is being used for, have to be on that connected to that ethereum network so when it comes to um buying and selling art pieces that are represented uh, or connected have tokens associated with them then you have to be on the network that that blockchain is using correct now that depends on the platform and i think this will improve in time um some platforms you do need to have an ethereum wallet already you will get paid in ethereum um a lot like super super rare is is one of the big ones and they run fully on ethereum um but other platforms like maker's place which is where pete Morbacker is and that's where i've got some stuff as well 
Maker's Place, you don't need to to have an Ethereum wallet. You don't need to understand the cryptocurrency in order to to purchase there. You don't need to understand in order to sell there either. They will actually create a wallet for you. Um, and you can also, people can pay in, in fiat with, with a debit card, with PayPal, um, and they will just transfer straight through to your PayPal. Okay. So, no, sorry, go ahead if you want to finish that. I was just going to say, so most platforms, you do need to have some understanding of, of Ethereum or cryptocurrencies in general, but more platforms are sort of starting to remove that barrier. Like that's why NBA Topshop has just blown up because they're, you don't need to understand crypto at all. They've, they've hidden the crypto element and the blockchain from the user. This is, um, yeah. <laughs> sorry. I'm just. Full disclosure, I'm super giddy and excited about this whole concept. So it's like hard for me to, as hard as it is to contain myself from talking over people, usually it's even more so now. Um, so that's great. Like I don't have to own any, any, I don't have to own any cryptocurrency at all to go to Maker's Place and buy a print of Christopher Kant's artwork and be able to say, this is the only copy of this artwork that anybody will be able to own. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. You could go to Maker's Place. I think I have two pieces that are one of one. Like there's only one that will ever be minted of that art. Um, and you could purchase it and you would be the only person in the world to own that token. And you would be able to resell it probably as long as I increase my brand. I work on my brand over the years. You probably would then be able to resell that art for more than you purchased it for. So immediately people are going to be saying, but it's a digital file. I, even after all of this talk about blockchain and crypto and whatnot, I, I, I'm still left with the fact that it's a digital file. How do you assure me that this is actually really the only one that exists like it? Because, well, in order to do that, you would have to understand, have some understanding of blockchains because everything on a blockchain is transparent. You can see who owns what. You can see where a token was minted. You can see it was minted by me, which is basically my signature. You can see where it was sent, how much for. You can, you can, you can track everything on the blockchain. So the only really way to be 100% sure would be to know, to know a bit of blockchain goodness so you could figure it out. Um, as far as does that then have more value to you than just any random JPEG, you know, the same JPEG, but not minted on a blockchain. I, I mean, that's going to come down to your own individual tastes. It's just like, you know, Supreme, the brand Supreme, like, that doesn't have any more value to me than any other brand. But for some people, for some reason, Supreme is, I got to have me some Supreme. I got to pay crazy money for a, what was it, a brick with Supreme printed on it? Yeah. So I think that's just going to come down to you as an individual. And it's going to be hard to explain to someone, you know, why it's important. Or it's going to be very hard to change their mind without them just seeing something that speaks to them and going, oh, now I get it, I guess. On the practical level, uh, what are these uh, quote-unquote originals and quote-unquote limited editions of the tokens selling for? 
sorry, what was that? I was, uh, Enzo was clarifying something in the chat and I got distracted. No worries. Uh, so what are they selling for? What is, like, what's an original selling for? Or what's a limited edition of like one to 10 of these copies being sold for? Uh, for massive amounts of money. I've, um, I've got a little, I'll put a link in the chat just to show you the kind of things that are going on. We're talking hundreds, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. For, for each someone. one or total? No, for some, for some individual pieces, we're talking hundreds of thousands. It's crazy. Uh, let me link. Of, of art. Yeah, yeah, Digi art, yeah. Digital art. Yeah, a piece of digital art. Most you, of it would okay. be animated stuff. For some reason, animated things because it's uniquely digital. People Do I want really, to ask really what the animation, what the content oh, of the animation not, is? It's not. It's not. It's not. It's <laughs> not. Um, while while Chris is uh, linking something into into chat, um, I wanted to address a, the clarification that Enzo was making in the chat. Um, for whoever is confused, the quote minting that Chris is talking about means putting up the artwork for sale and uploading it to the blockchain. So it's minted yeah. in the sense that you've already created the art. It's almost so now we using the parallel of actual minting. Yeah, I have you're, carved, you're minting that token. The non-fungible token is what's being minted, just like a right well so just to take the time to draw like an actual analogy with like a reality that people might have some familiarity with you create the artwork see that as somebody actually carving the etching of the block that's going to print money now you put your print your artwork up onto uh, the, uh, a blockchain and it gets quote stamped with one of these tokens that it, in essence is now you have taken the etching of the uh, the money, the currency, and you have printed a dollar bill. And now, so now you have like, is that like a? Does that sound? I, I, and yeah, maybe this yeah, was a yeah. bad analogy because now it comes off like I'm I'm saying that I'm printing money by like <laughs> like by printing digital pieces of artwork, but it's it's that like connection between like you've made one thing. And then you've now associated it with uh, uh, its real-world application. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I really think the closest thing would be creating your own mini currency. And I know most people in the real world would not create their own tiny currency. But that currency only has value if other people desire it. And you have to build the brand of that tiny. It's like, it's like a one-coin currency. Um, and you're trying to build history into this little currency, which is your brand. Um, and so the more people desire that one coin, that's the only coin that exists in this one coin currency, the more people desire it, the more it's, they're willing to pay to own it. Um, yeah. so, I, I pasted that, that link. You can see the, there's lists of the, the best performing artists on the main platforms. That's not, that's just the main crypto art platforms there's 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 smaller ones even quite big ones but they're just not on here and it hasn't been factored in so this is not by all means comprehensive numbers but you can click through and see what individual pieces are selling for on this this big list of artists so uh what about for smaller artists like who haven't yet made it big what are they get, 
so the artist gets the first cut and after that it's the resellers who will get the bigger amounts as the artist grows in popularity so let's say chris can't right now you're not world famous but in 30 years whoever bought your stuff early that gave you that money directly they then sell that money for profit you don't see anything from it but right now what do you get from your how much do you someone of your level get from these sales Okay, so I right now is a very strange time to try and jump into this because the because Ethereum is going bonkers. Um, I, I could get I don't know how deep you want to get into how how a lot of these platforms being built on Ethereum has quite big implications for how the scene is doing right now. Um, but so basically, when I got into it, Ethereum was valued at around six seven hundred dollars when I just started about a month ago, um, and I put some pieces on i put what did i put on i put on one painting edition of 10 and it was about 250 dollars for per edition so in total that would be 2500 if i sold them all and i put another one on edition of five and they were 150 dollars that's because the painting took me less time to finish so it was 150 dollars per edition and i put another one on there was a one of one and that was priced at around i think it was one Ethereum at the time, which was like 600, 700 bucks. And what happened within like three days or so, four days, is one of uh, instantly the two, one of the $250 editions got snapped up um, by another artist uh, just because he liked the piece. He's already made some sales and he just, he just liked the, I guess he just liked the painting and he, he bought my first, my first edition of that. One of the, I got an offer. On the one of one for four hundred dollars, which is just under two thirds of the price, and I rejected that because it wasn't quite enough for me for that painting. Because I know how much time I put in, and I just felt like that didn't quite justify my hours. And uh, that same, after I rejected, he went on and bought uh, the first one of the of the five edition piece. So in total, I made four hundred and fifty bucks in a few days. Um, right off the bat in the first week. And I thought, this is amazing. Just to jump in to a scene, no one knows who I am, put up some stuff and I make $450 right then and there. I thought this is incredible. But unfortunately, the, then the Ethereum bull run went bonkers. And with that, transaction fees for Ethereum went through the roof. And um, at the moment, only the really big established artists can sort of justify the crazy transaction fees because the way that these platforms are so tied to ethereum it means that when ethereum gets really busy transaction fees go up any sort of transaction like minting a new piece of artwork selling a piece of artwork from one person to another transaction fees go up for that so at the moment you're looking at about a hundred dollars plus per transaction so to mint a piece of art and then to sell it would be two transactions so it's very prohibitive for anyone who's just getting started and can't command thousands on these platforms it's very hard to get any anything going right now so we have to wait for that bull run for ethereum's you know crazy activity we need to wait for that to calm down really before getting stuck into these platforms um, just so yeah again. so is do you think that ethereum is going to be the benchmark for this into the future or they're going to be like new 
um, newcomers? No, there's definitely there's new platforms with that using different blockchains all, already in the last couple of months since the since Ethereum started you know, rising up in price. Um, I've been experimenting with one called Paras, Paras.id, which is a, a really fun little format. It uses a completely different blockchain with much much smaller fees. Um, the fees are tiny. It's like point point. It's like point zero zero one of a cent or something in order to do a transaction. Um, and I put some stuff up and instantly sold two of them. I think they're hardcore collectors. As soon as a card appears, they're like, just buy it. Um, and that was about 50 bucks for those two. Um, so I don't, you know, there's, there's, there's Wax. Wax is another blockchain that a lot of NFT stuff is happening on. Um, yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of other platforms popping up because of ethereum uh they're popping up and, and these platforms are, you know that people are migrating to them there's smaller artists like me are migrating to them so after you got the those sales at those prices of 150 dollars 250 dollars what is that worth for you now or did you cash out already okay so the 150 bucks one he paid in he paid with debit card so i got the 150 to my paypal the 250 bucks uh, I got paid in Ethereum and I, I held on to that, except for I used a bit to mint um, another piece of art and that was like 30 bucks. So that was quite expensive. Um, but I, I, I held on to that and that it's doubled roughly in value. It's, you know, it goes up and down, but it's roughly doubled in value, just under, I think, just by holding that Ethereum. It's so uh i think that there's an interesting thing happening here in chat first of all moose is back talking us right right in front of our faces feel very offended by this moose wow um, moose. So, well, I'm just, <laughs> but I'm, I, listen i'm biting my tongue because this is gonna be on recording and i i don't want that those things i'm thinking to be on the recording so well, we can either do this right now or we can do it later but um, I do. I, I I do just because I I your input is is valuable. I'm not like uh, in seriousness. I'm not like shitting on on what you're saying. I, I it's I, it's valuable to um hear the question marks going off um because in because in chat you said and again I I'm not trying to call you out. It you said uh, in response to um. Oh shit! Well, anyway, you Here, said I can do it. Okay, yeah, you, I can you do, do it. it. I'm sorry. Okay. So Autumn, uh, who was a previous guest on our thing, was saying that you know, he really hopes that this takes off. He can see how it adds value to uh, the digital art market and lets people uh, sell things. And I'm all for that. Like the entire point of this podcast is helping artists make more money. That's the bottom line, right? Uh, my personally, my personal thoughts is this makes this is the supreme stuff that uh, uh, Chris was saying earlier, where he doesn't see any value in it. I personally don't see it. He doesn't see any value in the Supreme logo. I don't see any value in the Supreme logo. I also don't see any value in the, uh, the, t the digital token saying, this is my digital token. This is my copy of this file. This one is the unique one. Because one, the thing you used to create, it was a PSD file, right? So that's the original file as far as I'm concerned. And that's on your computer. And if you make a copy of that, that copy is the copy. And it's not the original. The original is on your computer. It'll always be there unless you somehow 
loses that hard drive or whatever. But I, I, I don't see the value in uh, saying, quote unquote, this one is the original JPEG when it wasn't even the, probably even the original JPEG. It's not actually an original. You're just creating a token that's the original. And you're saying this token is associated with this original art piece. I don't see the value in it. But hey, so many of our friends are digital artists. If they can find a way to make an extra buck off a bunch of people that have too much money, please do. That's the bottom line of this. I don't like when Chris uh, sent me a DM one morning, I woke up and I looked at my phone and he said he sold one. I was like, cool. You got some money off a bunch of morons. Congratulations. And I didn't mean it sarcastically or uh, angrily. Yeah, I, I thought him. you were being rude. I thought you were being really mean to me. <laughs> no, I was thinking, good. You got money from people who don't need it. That was my general thought. And then I went back to sleep. And then Chris was like, oh, you were really mean. Like, what? I, I didn't know. Like, no, seriously. Take the money from the people who don't need it. Fuck the. Oh, sorry. Screw them. Uh, I don't care about those people. You're my friend. You take their money. Good. But as far as whether or not it has value, I don't believe it. And and that I is a, a like a, a legit objection. I have a thought on that, but I, I definitely want to hear what what Chris has to say. I just want to say that I have a thought. <laughs> But I, I mean, I would assume that you're not, you don't put much um, value in rarity in general in that case. Because I don't, I think, I, I'm not much of a collector. I don't, you know, I, I'm, I don't care about Rolex watches just because it's a Rolex. Like it's not, it's just not the way I operate. But these people do care. Lots of people do care. And I think that's, uh, that might be the key difference. Well, if it's if like an original traditional painting, sure, I can see that having more value than uh, a, a photo of it. That's fine. But uh, if we're saying uh, if we're saying a limited edition print, and you're saying that at this size, there's only ten of them, I can believe that. But now we're saying this file is only one of ten files that I deem as legitimate or limited edition when it's equally as of a file of an image as anything else that's been out there that of that same dimensions that same resolution but it's, it's not, not fungible but i believe it is but it's not though because it has that digital token the token it's, it's, is non-fungible yeah, that token not. but the token and the art are now inseparable so just in if the sense you that, think they are if i don't think they are then no, they're not they, to me no but okay but i'm not trying to like convince you otherwise i'm just trying to say that it's just it's in the same way that you can paint a completely uh, convincing replica of the Mona Lisa. Ultimately, you've painted a replica of the Mona Lisa, and it's and it's not that. The Mona Lisa is in the Louvre. It's signed by Da Vinci. It's Ironically, all of the, things. The, 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 the Mona Lisa itself is thought to maybe be a copy. Well, the, okay. The, the, <laughs> the, the point, though, is that like an original painting... And Chris, we're going to get back to your interview. This isn't going to devolve no, into an argument no, this between is me. And no, this is fine. We can we can talk about this. We have only have Chris for a limited amount of time. If we want to go about this for <laughs> between me and Joby, we can do that all fair. But uh, I've said my piece, and you're not going to change my mind. So we can just move on and not. That's waste that's fine. Chris's that's time. fine. I won't try and convince you. I just for the sake of the people listening, and and not to get the last word in, but just to establish that point just that, to get the last word and got it okay yes just to establish the point that like yes replicas can be made no one is going to debate that no one is saying that this like eliminates the possibility 
for a replication to be made. But it establishes a distinct difference between an original and a replication. It, to me, this sounds more like uh, back when uh, the RIAA was going off on Nap Napster. Like, you wouldn't download a car, would you? No, it, 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 it's, it's the same thing. You're getting a copy of a file, and they're equally the same, and you both have one. It doesn't make one more, less valuable than the other. The only thing that's unique in being transmitted is the token. The token has value. The d file does not. It's the yeah. idea of the token that is getting the value. And this again, is... like I said, if for artists, please take advantage of this. I want you to make money. I want you to be happy. You're, <laughs> you're getting underpaid. So this is a way for you to get paid more. Please take advantage of it. This is perfect for the next question. Chris, do you find yourself ever in the role of educator? Uh, and do you actively seek out conversations to try and sort of like spread some awareness about this and not, you know, not convince the mooses of the world, but to make counterpoint to some of the objections or concerns that people might have? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm finding myself this past month, I'd be submerging myself in crypto art Twitter, which is amazing. It's so, it's so cool. They're such positive people and they're so, they're so excited. The whole, it's quite a small community, but they're so, they're just, they're just, they see the future and they're running at it and it's awesome. Uh, and I find myself submerging myself in that and then going back to my discord and just, you know, I'm excited about it. And I just like, look at this thing I found. And then people will pop up saying, oh, this is, uh, you know, is this money laundering? Is this, uh, it sounds like people with too, too much money there. You know, they're just throwing it around. Uh, does this thing, does this really have value? Um, so I do find myself trying to convince people. And I'm, I, have, I have convinced a few, but it takes, it takes a long time. It takes repeated exposure to the idea. You've got to keep bashing people over the head with it until they finally give in and dig into it. And I think once they do their own looking into it, quite often they are convinced. Smooth is a stubborn man. Well, he's very I intelligent. Mean, we'll we'll, give, we'll, we'll give Moose like, the credit that he's due. <laughs> it reminds me of like sneakers. There are people who collect sneakers. And that's great. And they're worth thousands of dollars. I don't know why, but they are. And it's a huge hobby. People love it. That's great for them. But it's not for me. That sneaker is worth $60 to me. To them, it's the way, worth $60. What I would kind of relate it to would be like a musician. You can listen to their work on Spotify. You know, for, it's free. But you could, if they release like a limited edition vinyl, um, some people are just going to snap that up instantly, even though they might not even have vinyl players. They can't even do anything with it. Um, they're just going to see value in its rarity. It's not about listening to the music. It's about owning, it's about, you know, having a, a part of the story of the musician. And it's sort of like an investment piece that will probably go up in value over time. I don't think it's, it's really about, you're right, it's not really about the file all it's about that token and i think it's it's a similar thing to you know all kinds of creators releasing limited edition stuff and uh band they snapping it up because they want to be part of it not necessarily because they the practicality of the thing yeah right. all of this is perceived value like all of this is made up money is made up money is purely conceptual but we all agree on the concept and so this is all this is just a, a thing where people are agreeing Yes, this has value. I agree that this is awesome and I want it. Um, with uh, the sites that... Oh, go ahead, what were you going to say? 
So I think there's a way to wrap this up and move it into the next topic of uh, Chris's blog. And that is, so a lot of people in chat, especially Ali, just specifically uh, said, she's having a hard time wrapping her head around all of this. She's gonna have to rewatch it again, but you have a blog. Do you have an article on this yet? Or is this something that you could write up and like do a beginner's idiot's guide to uh, crypto art and everything? I wrote one about a month ago, right as I was getting into it, as I was just, you know, because I was a, it was a very layman's point of view. You know, it was just literally what I'd figured out over that week or something. Um, I do definitely plan on writing many, many more articles about it. The problem is, is that this thing is so new that I know it's not going to bring in very much Google traffic. Um, so I, when I, I'll be writing purely for the, for excitement, I guess, excitement's sake. Uh, and to explain things to you know my discord uh, community and people like ali um so yeah my blog is selfemployedartist.com all one all one word it's going pretty well um yeah i i'm sorry to hiccup it and make the transition lame because moose did make it All super right, i'm gonna smooth. go pee okay <laughs> um but there was one more question about copyright and this had been brought up in chat like way back a while ago um yeah. are, are you giving up any copyright or ownership of this when you when you do this no it depends on the contracts of the platform but nearly all of these platforms they are um you don't give up any rights at all uh just like if you're selling a, a print or if you if you if you even painted a, a an oil painting, if you sold that oil painting, the buyer wouldn't get the rights to the image. The artist still keeps rights to the rights to the image, and it's it's the same it's the same principle. Okay, fair enough. Someone a visual nomad also asked if the link between the piece and the token can be broken by a hacker. Um, no, I don't think there's ever been a case of a of a blockchain being having any sort of forgery or being hacked or anything. Yeah, I don't think to, it's ever happened. And to understand why that is, it goes back to the idea of blockchain being a distributed network. So if you wanted to hack a particular item on the blockchain, you would have to quite literally hack every single computer that was connected to that not, that network simultaneously. Yeah. And when you're talking about something like the Ethereum network, you're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of computers. Yeah. I don't even know. Like, and it'll only keep growing as more and more people use Ethereum. And more, yeah. more people work as as validators. Yeah. So every so, single yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> every single computer on that network has awareness of every single thing that's happening on that network. So if you try and hack the token that Chris has minted a piece of his art with artwork with, everybody knows about it. It's just yeah, you, it, 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 yeah. I don't even know what a proper analogy is, but not going to happen. I don't think. The closest thing is torrenting. It's the closest thing I've ever found to blockchain. Yeah. But right. even that doesn't come close. Um, so now that Moose is back, perfect. Back to your blog. Uh, when you've started a blog, is, is that's an interesting thing to hear about just in itself. We've sort of like come full circle on blogs where they were this cool, innovative thing 20 years ago. They became um something that your grandma did and now you're making them cool and innovative again um 
what is it what is it that drew you to blogging <laughs> I'm sorry sorry to interrupt when you're on your, on your tweet you said it was cutting edge business models and i was like i'm just talking about <laughs> blogging that's why, that I, that, that's why I wanted to lead with the uh, the blockchain and the crypto art because that is cutting edge. Um, the blogging, in seriousness, I think that there is, it's not innovative in the sense that like nobody knew about it until you discovered it. There's a, there's a ongo- There's a proven business model here, but lots of people may not be aware of it. When you told me about it, I was kind of a little bit shocked. So tell us a little bit about what, piqued your interest in blogging and how did you figure out that there was still like a viable business model here? What does that look like? Okay. So I would say, you know, I said I was in Chiang Mai and I was around a lot of people who were uh, digital nomad types. Um, they were all making money online in various ways and a large number of them had blogs and their own websites. Um, quite a large number of YouTubers, a lot sold courses. Um, and that's when I guess the, the idea I was like, oh, I didn't know blogging was, you know, profitable. I thought that was a, that died off, you know, blogging is dead, as they say. Um, and, you know, I was freelancing and I was around all these people who had these blogs and YouTube channels and noticing that I seem to be doing a lot more work for a lot less money than some of these people. And really thinking, okay, I need to figure out something more scalable. Um, and passive income is the is the hot, trendy term for it. But I need to figure out something more scalable than just exchanging my time for an hourly rate. And that's why I started streaming, not because I knew it would be um, passive, but because it was going to be more scalable. Because at least I could add, you know. Um, I'd be doing my freelancing as well as getting donations, as well as, you know, building an audience. I just knew it was like trying to find ways to scale. And Twitch didn't seem as intimidating. Twitch seemed really simple, you know, like I could just jump in, just do what I normally do, just with the camera on. Like, okay, I can do that. Um, and that's why I actually stopped streaming is because I realized like I shouldn't, I'm doing this because it, it's easy. I, I perceived it to be the easier thing. And I really should be making a website and writing, doing the hard thing, which is either to build a YouTube channel or a website with a blog, like all these people are doing. I should be modeling the thing that's worked for them because I can see that they're traveling and they're working, they're writing occasionally, but most of the time they're sort of boozing it up in the evenings, having a lot of fun, um, and seem to be making way more money than me. I've lost track of the question. <laughs> Um, no, but I think no, that you're still on it. it yeah, was, you're uh, still. Yeah. What made you switch from you know, wanting to do primary making, creating the art to making things other than art to make money? Right. Yeah. So I realized, like, I need to, I need to go scalable, and that's why I was streaming, and I was just finding that it wasn't quite going to be where I wanted to go, um, and I needed to. I still felt like I was on a treadmill. You know, I was still constantly having to do like more work every month just to, to make enough to survive. Um, so then I really started looking into sort of passive, they're still talking about NFTs. <laughs> I started looking into um, passive business models. Oh, man, the chat is too in- interesting right now, isn't it? 
Don't worry, I'll, I'll ban everybody so we can continue. It's fine. it's fine. No, don't get distracted by it. It's that it's awesome that they're um, I started looking to more passive business models. Um, and I came across a blog called createandgo.com. Um, and they they were making ridiculous sums of money. They were making, you know, 100 to like 300,000 a month, every month, like clockwork. And I didn't, that really, um, <laughs> God, come on guys. <laughs> um, that really caught my eye when I saw that they were making ridiculous money every single month. Uh, cause I always thought, you know, the blogging thing wasn't viable. They were obviously proving that it was, it was completely viable. So what actually now makes you the money on the blog? Um, Push to talk, Joby. See, I knew that I was going to, I get too excited and I was going to forget it. Um, so what actually makes you money on the blog? I mean, everybody like understands like Google AdSense and um, Amazon affiliation and that kind of thing. What, run it down real quick. Like how does, what does it actually look like? Okay. So Writing articles doesn't actually earn you money. What it earns you is traffic, essentially. Um, and it's quite a long grind. So I'll be completely upfront and that we've only just started monetizing, but we're actually ahead of, of schedule. So I'm following, there's a, a YouTube channel called Income School and they teach people how to create niche blogs. So blogs about whatever their chosen topic might be, all kinds of blogs. Um, so I'm following their model. and. In their model, about a month 11 of blogging is around where you're going to start earning a bit of money. So it's a very long game. And we've been in it, I think this is our seventh month, and we're around where we should be at month 11. So we're doing really, really well um, for the timeline. Uh, so last month was the first time we actually made any money. Um, how it works. So, yeah, you're, you're writing the articles to get Google traffic. That's the whole purpose. And then you want to direct that Google traffic toward the thing that they're after. So my articles, our articles, I've actually sleepy, sleepy Trump. She actually, she's my assistant. She helps me, uh, she helps me write, write the articles. Um, so ours are about digital art, freelancing, uh, tablets. So we're answering specific questions on Google. Uh, about tablets, for example, and then we'll be redirecting people. We'll be giving them some advice on maybe what tablet they should purchase and then redirecting them to Amazon to make that purchase. Um, but we've, like I say, the goal first is to get the articles up and generating traffic and then the ones that are working for you, monetize them. So we Sorry, just when put you say ads work, on. When you say working for you, you what, push what the does talk that mean? Again. Damn it. Sorry, when you say working for you, what, is, what does that mean? So the articles take a long time to age in. Google, basically, when you, you've written an article, it takes about a month for Google to detect it and then start basically teasing it with the, within the Google search results. And you'll be, it'll start you off in like uh, page 100 for your main search term. So your exact title, it'll start you off like right at the back. And so you'll get like one impression occasionally. And then it's going to slowly start teasing um, you in, in various search results related around, around the topic that you've written on. So it's trying to figure out where your article should be on Google, how far up the rankings it should be, like how good is it, basically. How do users interact with it? Do they, do 
they like it. So they spend, you know, five minutes reading it or do they come in and then they're off because it's no good. So it's, it's Google is like testing your article. So how long an article will take to rank? It all depends on the amount of traffic is that searching for it every month. Um, it depends on the competition. So if other people have written, there's tons of really good articles out there about it. Google is going to take a long time to start ranking your article. So at the moment, uh, some of our articles that we've written haven't even started getting traffic. They're too fresh. Um, and some of our very first articles are starting to hit a plateau. They're starting to, they've been gaining traffic and now they're just starting to, to max out what they're going to get monthly. Um, so we're, we're getting about five, 600 visitors a day on the site at the moment. It's pretty cool. Last month, I've, I've written it down. What were we getting last month? Okay, so I've written some brief things. So we started getting traffic in August and then we got 40 people. Uh, in September, it was 800. October, 2,500. And then, yeah, this month, um, 12,500. And we've ended this month at about 600 people a day. Um, and that's coming from some articles. Some haven't even started ranking. Some are very good, so Google doesn't like them. Some has got no competition, so they're right up at the top. Uh, yeah. So we've got about five articles that are doing like 80% of the work. Are you doing anything to point the internet, the whole internet, at your blog? Or is it a set it and forget it thing? It's a set it and forget it thing. The only thing I'm doing is on Discord. I've got a webhook set up for the announcements so that when I post a new article, Discord will detect that there's a new article and post a, a link, a new article up on selfemployedartist.com with a, you know, like a ping, a roll ping for anyone who wants to see the articles. Uh, that's the only thing we've got. Other than that, it's all organic Google traffic. I mean, did, have you done things to like optimize seo and all of those typical fancy things that people talk about it's it's all yeah it's 100 seo yeah okay so right, cool. yeah which um, is using terms that people are searching for inside the article and the headers etc yeah so that's it's really important that you there's various tools you can use to check search volume um about how often a, a term is searched and then there's a few tools you can use to try and analyze the competition for that search term. And what you're really looking for is something that's got high search volume and low competition. So if an artist was thinking about doing this, um, should they... You've, you've made more or less educational blogs. Do you have like a sense of what style of blog is more prone to catching traffic or is it like, is there a, what's, what, what are your parameters for that? Definitely educational stuff. I mean, that you want, you, you want to concentrate on evergreen topics, meaning it's a topic that's going to, it's a query that's going to stay relevant. Um, so, I don't really want to talk about which specific articles are doing well because Google, you know, Google works the way it does. Uh, the number one result gets the most traffic. Number two gets a bit less. 
So if I tell you which exact articles are doing really well, someone else could just come in and be like, well, just make it better. And you'll automatically have number one position and be stealing <laughs> my traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but in general, it's the site is educational in nature, and yeah. the, the information that you're giving is actually good information too. It's not like you're just trying to uh, be a snake oil salesman and say, "Hey, this is how you make a whole lot of money with art," and then just put a bunch of garbage in there. You're actually using viable information inside those. Right. Articles. Yeah. Yeah. That's what will keep. That's what will get me up in the search rankings. If I um. Because Google is a very smart algorithm, it, it can it can assess how how the users um, whether they like the content or not. It can tell by read time whether they keep coming back to the site. So if they read an article and they enjoyed it, then they might come and, and you know check again in a week and see if there's anything new been posted. And that's a good signal to Google that this is quality content. So you definitely what what you want to be doing is you want to be teaching people. Um, the things they want to know if they so we've just uh, some of our recent articles are about um comparing tablet brands and we're just trying to be completely upfront and honest about like wacom versus huion and just really tell people like you know the differences and who who might prefer a wacom who might prefer a huion uh, the advantages and disadvantages of each yeah it's about it's about just giving the people the information that they're looking for and then from there, so you say this kind of person would probably prefer this, this kind of person would probably prefer that, and you link them over to the thing that they're looking for, yeah, and you get a small commission off it. So it goes without saying that you can be as specific or as vague as you want to be as far as actual numbers, um, but do you have a sense of like how much can actually be made from running a blog like what what is, do you have long-term projections of you know like what the long what the returns will be yeah so like i said we just started monetizing um and like our first month it was like so last month was our very first month and we made 80 bucks so i'm gonna be yeah it's tiny tiny money at the moment um this month is looking about 200 dollars. next month we're going to be hopefully three to four hundred and hopefully it'll be a an exponential increase like that. So this month, last month, we just put ads on for the very first time. Um, and they were earning $10-ish per thousand people that came through. This month, those ads, the same ads, are earning $13. And that should slowly creep up as, again, that's an algorithm. And it starts to learn what kind of ads perform best on our blog and on top of that i i started putting a small amount of affiliate links in one article this month and that produced an extra 40 dollars. so that's where part of the income has come from so as as our articles age in and start to get more traffic over time as new ones start to get traffic as we publish more articles and as i start putting affiliate links in each article we should be able to slowly creep up our income um and long term, the goal is to produce courses and tutorials for the specific articles that are doing well. So one of our articles brings in about 6,000 people a month with a specific query. So I am probably going to end up making a tutorial that, aren't, that, that deals with that specific query and a bunch of other stuff, you know, a paid tutorial 
um, in order to be able to, you know, link 6,000 people every month to it. It's like hyper-targeted audience for a specific course. So uh, these numbers that you're saying, I understand that it's just the beginning, but what was the numbers that were driving you to even try this? Because you had done research prior. What were the numbers that made you think, this is viable, this is how much people are making, I want to do that too? Well, Creating Go was the, the big one. They... Um, they sell courses a lot like Justin's from last week. Justin Donaldson was selling like $300 courses. They sell, they've got a very similar like $300 kind of price mark. And they were making 100000 a month, 300000 a month. Really ridiculous. Createandgo.com. Um, Income School, those guys are both millionaires. They, they own multiple blogs. The amazing thing about blogs is... Other people can write the articles. Oh, I'm breaking up a bit, sorry. The other people can write the articles. So once you've got extra income from your blog, you can hire more writers. So you can start new blogs. You just plan out which article is going to be written. you got to start new blogs. So it starts becoming this exponential machine. The silence you're hearing is, oh, my head exploding. <laughs> it's, I... if, if you, I would... Yeah, Income School on YouTube and take a look through. There's a community around Income School of other bloggers. Amelia Gardner was one of the first smaller ones that I found. Um, and you start meeting all these like people. They're small-time YouTubers and they're making thousands a month from their blogs. And it's very, once you've got it set up, it's very passive because the, the article is written, the people are coming in, you're redirecting them to the place they want to go to. Um, and that just keeps happening in perpetuity until someone else comes in with a better article than you and you've got to then try and compete with them. But that kind of thing doesn't, I don't know how often that would happen. The numbers um, are you, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. So because, because the work you've done, it kind of exists, you know, it's passive. It's now once you've set it up, it's, it's doing its thing. It means that, okay, so once I hit about a thousand a month, that will cover my monthly expenses and I can reinvest any extra money into or writing into an editor to make youtube videos and it all starts building upon itself i can i can take time off writing articles and put time into the courses and know that that thousand a month will be coming in anyway while i work on these courses they can link up into that whole machine and now people are being sent to the course you know you can see it's sort of like a it's a it's building blocks it's like building a house um, let's talk a little bit about the lead up or the, the build up, um, to the blog being something that is going to start drawing in traffic. Um, what was your workload like in the, in the first days of the blog? How much time were you spending on writing the articles and researching and all of that stuff? How long, and then how long did it take you? to get to the point where you're like, okay, now we're ready to have the start generating traffic. Okay. Uh, I, I've been doing, I've been, I'd learned about, you know, income school around the end of 2019. And then I left Thailand and there was a whole, you know, I was doing, finishing up some freelance and all that. So I think around the beginning of 2020, I started putting things together, sort of doing research on what articles to write. Um, 
sometime around the beginning, like March. Um, and we wrote, and I, I got Sleepy, Sleepy Tron uh, on board as well. And we, yeah, I paid her to help me do some, a bunch of research, just basically Googling things. We were just Googling stuff and using these keyword tools to figure out their search volume. And then we're trying to, okay, this one's got good search volume. How, what's the competition like? So we're just Googling a whole ton of stuff, hundreds and hundreds of things. Um, and our first articles came out 29th of June. So it was, uh, yeah, three, four months of, of research about what to write and putting together our very first articles. And um, that was while I was doing commissions, you know, as well as freelancing. Um, I was doing the D&D stuff. I'm sure you guys are familiar. Um, so how much time was I putting in every day? I tend to be like an all-in kind of guy. So I, it, it's, it was normally like two weeks straight of, you know, six, eight hours a day, just research and, and basic writing. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, be back to freelancing for a couple of weeks. So, oh man, it's hard to estimate the time, but it, it's not, it's not easy. And it takes, you know, it, it, we only just started making money. So it was definitely, it's been a lot of hours put in, um, in order to turn it around into something. Yeah, and I, that's why I wanted to hear about that because people might have dollar signs exploding out of their eyeballs, and you know, like in the long term, you know, there's a viable source of income, but also be prepared to do the work up front. And there's like a lot of it. It's not just a get rich quick scheme. Yeah, indeed. I would say if you already have a product, then you could probably so talking about Justin Donaldson, he's already got courses about, about gouache and landscapes. I would say if he was to write some articles about gouache and landscapes, then it wouldn't be, you know, I don't know, five to 10, then he might be able to turn that around into profit fairly quickly. Mm. Um, just because he's already got a product set up that'd be perfect for that audience, you know? Um, so, do you have a sense of where the blog should exist? Like, should you have the blog is the website for you, right? Like that's just, yeah. you're not really doing anything else on that website, but the blog, do you have a sense of the pros and cons of having it set up that way, as opposed to attached to a website that an, an artist might, a personal website that an artist might already have? Yeah. So I'd say there's two sort of ways to do it. Um, and that would be if you've already got an established thing that you're trying to achieve, like you're, you're like, yeah, you're an established artist. You've already got some tutorials. You're already making certain type of art. Then attaching a blog to it would be smart and trying to figure out the right articles to write, to bring the, the right people to your established product. That's definitely, that'd be one way of going about it. And the other way, which is what I'm doing would be to start with the articles. Just look for the ones that are high demand in your sort of area of interest, things you're interested in. Look for the ones that are high demand and low competition. Bring the people to it, to your blog, and then build on the, the other elements, like a store, which is what we'll be doing. So you'll be creating products specifically for the audience. 
So uh, yeah, there's a product first and an audience first approach. And with SEA, selfemployedartist.com, we'll be doing the audience first approach. SEO seems so, I mean, I understand it conceptually, but I, for some reason it seems mysterious to me. What did, was it similar for you or did you are, did, did it come naturally to you or did you do research to kind of figure out like, okay, how does this actually work? What do I do with this? It didn't come naturally. I didn't understand it at all. It felt like some sort of, you know, SEO is some weird voodoo thing, but it's, it's fairly simple. It's about trying to be as accurate as you can with your language, basically. You're trying to use the right words to pull in the people that would be interested in the thing that you want to show them. If you have a, a, a course, you're trying to bring it, if it's, if it's about wash, you're trying to use the right terminology to bring in people that want to learn about how to use gouache. Um, that's all SEO really is. It's just about being very, understanding exactly how Google is going to interpret the words you've used. Once so, you've done it, it makes it's a, it's a little easy. You realize it's you's like, oh yeah, you, you kind of recognize like this paragraph I've written is misleading to Google. You know, you'll start to recognize this sort of stuff as you as you practice it. Yeah, I feel like I'm having the same reaction that like uh, people in chat were having when we were talking about crypto, where I just I feel like a a dog watching you do card tricks, where I was like, I see you, I hear the words coming out of your mouth, and then I'm <laughs> yeah, I get lost. Last uh, like two years ago, uh, Chris and I were talking about this, and I was on board. I was like, "Okay, I'll make a uh, a blog, and it'll be like, about like social media, getting ahead, and that stuff." And then I started getting to this SEO stuff, and I completely lost all motivation to <laughs> even uh, go forward with this at all because I had to change which words I was using that I already written in an article to match things that I had found that uh, are highly searched terms. And it just felt so soulless, tedious, and just obnoxious to me that I had no drive to do it at all. That's why I posted the uh, the Google Doc for everything I'd ever learned about Instagram just and gave that away for free because I just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, it does take a final pass going over your writing and sort of thinking, is that really the... You look, you're trying to think, well, what would someone type in Google, even for your subheaders? You're like, if someone was looking for this information, what would they type in Google? Have I written the header in a way that they would phrase the question? Um, yeah, and it, it's quite, yeah, it's not, it's not fun. It definitely isn't fun. You have to read through your writing and, like, yeah, make some of it quite um, soulless. Yeah, you're right. Well, in that, with, with that in mind, would you say that, because there are people that make this their job, right? Like, they do search engine optimization as they're like, like that's the thing that they do, right? Would it be worth it to hire somebody to do that for you? Possibly. Um, I think it's it's not that hard. It's not. It just takes a bit of practice, really. I think maybe you would start and you could hire someone to do like your first few, and then look at what they've changed, and pretty soon you would pick up on. Oh, I see why he's changed this. I think pretty quickly you would pick up on on why the, the language you were using might be misinterpreted by Google and why his language is better. I so I think Go ahead. for your very first, yeah, for your first ones, maybe talking to someone who understands SEO better than you would be 
great. Um, I think you pick it up really faster. I guess I'm just thinking about people like, uh, or, or <laughs> that sounded bad, people like Moose. Um, I, because I share a lot of what Moose is talking about, where I just feel like my brain would just start to turn into liquefied goo and seep out of my ears. Um, so people like us, <laughs> who might, it might not just be as, as simple as like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing. Now I can do that too. But just like, oh my God, I, that seems just really hard to do for longer than five minutes. That might be a place for somebody to do your SEO for you. Yeah, I think um, if you find it fatiguing, then yeah. And it probably would. It depends on how expensive Mr. SEO Expert is. I don't know how much they would charge. And the problem with it is that they would have to read through your work, which takes time. So I imagine that it wouldn't be, you know, cheap. They don't have to read through like a 3,000 word article or whatever, 2,000, 3,000 words. Um, maybe they could just do it really fast. I, I don't know. I don't know how much, how expensive that would be. Um, yeah, that's fair. That SEO optimization people might be something that like Coke does, but maybe, <laughs> maybe yeah, sm small, think, poor freelance artists don't do yeah. that. <laughs> I think if you were, because a lot of people try writing blog posts and then they find it doesn't get them anywhere and uh, they stop. And I think learning SEO is possibly a big part of that, that they didn't go out, you know, they didn't write their, their blog post very SEO friendly um, and they can't afford an SEO expert. So I think, yeah, I would agree that you would have to put time into learning SEO, learning search analysis to find good topics to write about. and trying to understand the competition that you're up against. So how strong other websites are, whether you could possibly compete with them in a specific niche. Just as an aside, funny story, not really useful to anybody. Uh, two years, no, no, sorry, four years ago, I was actually writing a blog and it was for a project spark, a game that no longer exists, but we were getting 2 million unique viewers a day, sorry, a month, not a day. And we didn't know how to monetize it. And Google canceled our uh, AdSense account. So we made no money off of it for <laughs> like three or four years of getting 2 million view uh, viewers per month. And this is you know, way before I met Chris, obviously. So all that money, I'm thinking, hmm, how much could we have made if we actually knew what we were doing? Yeah, Don't think about it. <laughs> yeah, I reckon, well, it depends on, it's a game, right? It was a game. I'm not sure how you would monetize that. So, at the very least, it was just Google Ads that would have been playing, or what other better ad source than Google? Because we didn't know anything other than uh, any ad sources other than Google, so we didn't go to anybody else other than Google. Right. Um, how many do you say you get? Two million unique visitors. So, the lowest rates for for Zoic, which is the ad ad network that I'm using, I partnered with. Mm. <laughs> um, that the lowest rates would be about ten dollars per thousand people. So at two million a month, you would have been looking at some cash just for the ads. Moving on, um, uh, someone in the chat uh, mentioned DuckDuckGo or Bing as you know other search engines. Do you take that into consideration, or is Google like such the standard that it doesn't even? Factor. I did take a quick look at Bing Webmaster 
something like that. And it was, it was nothing. It was, you know, a few here and there. And I was just like, okay, forget about that. So I might be getting being traffic that I don't know about. It might be significant. Um, but from everybody that I've, I follow, they don't even take notice of being traffic. That, that go. None of it's, it's not, yeah, Google has such like a stranglehold on the search engine market that it's not worth even worrying about optimizing for other search engines. This is a pretty random and tangent. Well, that's not tangential, but it just occurred to me. I haven't thought through this question at all. So forgive me. It, you know, like they talk about um, nationalizing some of these uh, big tech companies, you know, or making them pub regulating them like public utilities. Has that factored into anything? Like, I mean, does that like, is, is there any like potential for that to pinch the traffic flows to, you know, what you're, you're doing or does that have implications for you at all? I mean, definitely. Yeah. Um, so Google, Google will even update its algorithm a few times. It updates its algorithm like constantly. It'll have some big updates now and then. Um, there was one in December that was pretty big and that did, that made our traffic like just a straight line. It didn't grow. We've been growing like crazy for every month before. And then December was just flat line. Um, basically, you know, it was a bit wiggly, but because of Google's new algorithm update and now January, that thing's been sorted out. They've done their update and now it's back off at its trajectory. So any sort of, yeah, definitely things can definitely affect Google traffic. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't know about regulation. That You just kind of have to take things as they come, uh, I think. Um, the, the good thing is, is that you can diversify your traffic. So a lot of bloggers will use things like Pinterest, uh, YouTube to direct traffic to the article. So it's very, it's smart to try and diversify, you know, Twitter, Instagram as well. Just try and diversify. Yeah. So speaking of Pinterest, um, since you mentioned it, that's a, a great transition to another set of questions that we had for you, which is, um, all, all about Pinterest. And you, you mentioned that to me, this is another thing that you raised my eyebrows when, you know, first was when you mentioned blogs and then when you described how Pinterest can actually be utilized to help drive traffic for you. Um, what? <laughs> Pinterest like I mean this is a place for uh, you know people find like recipes and home decoration ideas and stuff like how does that factor into what you're doing okay so it's actually it's it's pretty decent for digital art I don't know if you do you use Pinterest to get references I mean a lot of artists do now I think yeah I do um, but uh, it's like secondarily I know that like a lot of people are like I only use Pinterest boards, but even in that, it's just like they're, they're collecting, um, they're collecting and hoarding the pictures rather than, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying, I'm wondering where the jumping off point is from like, okay, people have Pinterest boards and they hoard pictures to like that translates into traffic flow for you. It kind of comes down to SEO again. Uh, Pinterest also runs off. It's a search engine. It's just a, it just gives you vision, visual results. You know, you type in words just like you would with Google. Uh, it gives you visual results. So what you're 
what you're trying to do is craft an image that you're trying to you're trying to pair up your keywords with the image that you're that you're pinning, um, so that <laughs> so that the the users will be tempted to click through. So, for example, a decent example is if you you have a um, you're selling like reference photos figure, you know, graph, is it graphic studio on ArtStation that has all those reference packs yeah. of figures. So what you might do is create a board of figure drawing references, tons of photos, and hopefully you'll start gathering up people that will pin, you know, they'll, you know, save pins from that board, right? They'll start building their own little collection of figure drawing stuff. Now Pinterest knows that they enjoy your collection of figure drawing references. And then you throw in a pin now and then that, you know, it's like an eye-catching image of a, a figure drawing thing with a bit of text that says, click through for a reference pack. You know, there's, it's now 50% off, something like that. And that, that would link through to the Graphic Studio Art Station, you know, it's, you've got a sale going on or whatever. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to, you're giving people what they want, and then you're saying, if you want a bit more of this for a bit of money, you know, you can click through. So you're trying to, the, the key is to make an image that people want to click. And you have to, you have to kind of build up um, trust with them by giving them the images that they're after, helping them find the images they're after. So you're creating an image just for Pinterest as opposed to creating an image or pinning an interest, pinning, pinning, a picture that had been posted elsewhere. Well, you can do either, um, but yeah, you would be creating images for Pinterest. That's what we've been doing. I've been Sleepy's been helping me there. She's been making loads of pins. Um, she made like two hundred pins, something like that. Um, do other people do this, or is this just you guys creating your own unique pins for Pinterest? Because I see, like you said, we're talking about uh, using Pinterest for finding references. They're not on there saying hey do you like this uh skirt i wore this one time to use this reference uh well there's a website where i also wear other clothes you know it's usually just the picture of the person wearing the clothes sure um a lot of uh i mean that was i don't know if that example of the reference image with the you know 50 percent sale thing would work maybe it would or maybe i should try it a lot of this is based on throwing out a ton of pins like pinning, we pin like 13, 14 times a day. Um, it's, it's often it's not like a new pin every single time we pin. Sometimes it'll be, we'll be pinning, you know, one image to one board one day. A few days later, we'll pin that same image to a different board. That, that counts as a different pin. And we'll pin each image like three or four times. So often it's like three, you know, it's about three in, three pins per day. It averages out to three unique images that, that have been made or pinned from somewhere on the internet. Um, it, it, you have to you have to throw a lot of pins out, and you're looking to then check the analytics and see which ones are doing well, which ones aren't. You just learn like don't make pins that look like that because they don't get clicks. Make pins that look like this, you know. So you're you're, you're throwing a lot of uh, shit at the wall, basically. When you say look like, what do you, what do you when you when you say look like, what is that referring to? Your, your so you're not just making pins of like your personal art. Like there's actual there's other what what types of things are you pinning? So I mean, you could go to 
I could post the, let me get the link. So we're using stock images that we're pinning straight to the article, basically the article that's been written and we're using my art, um, usually the, the header art that's been used for the, the piece, but also stock images that we've just got that seem to be relevant. So that latest one about crypto art, it's been loads of images of Ethereum and pictures of Bitcoin, you know, and talking about crypto art, why you should be interested and try out different titles on the pins, different ways of phrasing it. Um, and then you just throw them all on Pinterest and see which one, you know, follow the analytics, see which one seems to be gaining a bit of traction. And then when we make more pins for the same articles, we'll just look at the data and say which ones don't seem to gain any traction, no one's interested in, which ones seem to be gathering some, some clicks through to the article, and we'll just make them more like that. So, uh, Joby, um, I had actually seen uh, the pins that Chris was making, and they are co combinations of images, a, a background flat color, and text. So I guess he's talking about changing the layup around, changing which color he used, changing you know what style of image was included in the uh, in the pin as part of the pin rather than being the entirety of the pin. If that makes sense. Yeah, I just dropped the the link to the Pinterest um, account in the chat. You can see most of these have been made by Sleepy. They're using stock images. Some of it's my own artwork. Different, you know, just trying out different um, layouts, different words. So many of these link to the same article, but the way that the text is written is slightly different. Some of them have no text, just to see how well they do, you know. So is there anything that would stop somebody from using somebody else's art? You said you use stock art, but is there anything else? People pin things that don't belong to them all the time. It's like, almost like the default way of using Pinterest. So is there anything that would stop somebody from using, you mentioned Pete Marbacher, if you, you use his Angelarian, pin his Angelarian pieces, and then use that stuff to link to your blog article. Is that legal? I don't know about legal. I don't know, but it's hard to fight it. And I think everyone's doing it. There's a, there's a website called Paintable. I don't know if you've seen paintable.cc. Um, and they they are all in on Pinterest. I think they're doing quite well from Pinterest. But he just <laughs> he just seems to use anyone's art. He doesn't care. He's he's using Pete's art, and I'm I'm almost hundred percent sure he has not asked Pete for permission to do that. He's just like, yeah, I'll just do it. If Pete gets in contact and tells me to stop, then I'll stop. But until then, I'll just carry on. Um, and it's working really well for him. I think. Sorry, I was I was looking at your Pinterest board while Moose was asking the question. So I just I. Forgive me for being repetitive. You, you guys are talking about using somebody else's art as the stock image that you would then put type over and post on your blog yeah. and then connect yes. to Pinterest. Yeah. Ooh, that's um, shady. It is it is naughty. I think it's it's naughty, yeah. All of the art we're using is stock or it's mine. So we haven't used anything that we don't have permission to use. I don't know if we'll cross that line. It, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not going to say, I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, it just seems let me grab, <laughs> shall I grab, shall I grab Paintable's profile? Because they are a good example of people who are doing it really right and they're doing very well, but you'll be able to see what kind of pins they're making. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Post it in the, uh, in the chat that, I mean, these are great resources and the, all of these links 
will be in the show notes as well. You posted one uh, when we were talking about the, the crypto and blockchain thing um, and your Pinterest board, and then this one that you're about to uh, pin. They'll, they'll all be in the show notes. So if anybody is just being like, what the hell is going on? Just scroll down so to the show notes. While you're uh, pulling that up, out of curiosity, yeah. where did you start learning about Pinterest actually being viable as opposed to just being a place for people to throw their crap up and forget about it? Um, from blogs that create and go, they generate most of their traffic that earns them. They're the ones that earn 100,000 up every month. They get most of their traffic from Pinterest and they, they teach blogging. They have another site, which is um, a yoga health food sort of site. So I guess that's how they got into Pinterest and that's how they figured out how it works. And that's a good niche because obviously the, the audience of Pinterest is overwhelmingly female. Um, and food and exercise are really popular on Pinterest. But then they moved over into blogging, which is not particularly suited to Pinterest um, pins about how to write articles. It's not particularly suited, but they managed still to to generate hundreds of thousands of click-throughs on Pinterest every single month. Um, yeah, I will, I will say that when, right after you told me about Pinterest, as a thing um in the like i don't know five minute conversation that we had about it you know or the five lines and discord dms that we exchanged about it i took that information and i added a little footer at the bottom of a lot of my website pages with just a scrolling um gallery of paintings and i linked those paintings or i posted the pictures from that gallery to Pinterest. And I check it every now and then. I check my website, uh, you know, what have what are what is it called? My my <laughs> analytics. Analytics. And Pinterest is ranking as like one of and this was with very minimal. And I and from what you've just told me, I did not do it in any sort of optimal way at all. I created a board just for those pictures to go to. <laughs> it's like a Pinterest board solely for the pictures that are on my website, solely for the purpose of pinning on Pinterest, which from what I'm gathering from what you're saying now is just like ass backwards from like everything you're supposed well, to be doing. <laughs> I mean, you can do that, but you should be doing that in addition to a ton, a ton more, you know, in order to get real results, you, you know, big, like, um, right. yeah, kind of crazy results that some people are getting. Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, imagine that if you had been, if you were in the know and you had been pinning like 15, 20 images a day where those numbers could get to. Um, well, yeah, yeah. With Pinterest, you're really, you're, you're looking for virality. It tends to be that like specific pins, like most pins will just do nothing and then specific pins will take off. That seems to be how the thing works. Like I've found that... Um, there's like two images. So what happened, what we did is Sleepy made those 200 pins. At the same time, for a couple of days, I just went and gathered a whole load of images off Pinterest to repin into our own boards. And I, I gathered like 2,000 images or something. <laughs> something, And I scheduled them up inside um, a scheduler called Tailwind. And that is $15 a month, and it will just post those 13, 14 every day for me. So I just scheduled the whole load of stuff in those two days. Sleepy made hers. I just chucked them in. 
And I just said, like, shuffle the queue. And now, so it was about like a week's work. And now those pins just fly out every day. And hopefully we'll be seeing sort of like how you just pinned once and then eventually that turned into a bit of traffic. Hopefully we'll be seeing like, you know, nice, consistent traffic as those pins just fly up the shelves, basically. It sounds like Sleepy is prepped for becoming a professional um, SEO website optimizer. <laughs> it's I, I, these. This is I'm like Sleepy. Uh, what's your What's your hourly rate here? <laughs> you have to talk to Sleepy. I've I've uh, I've suggested that she could start her own blog for sure, and I think she's thought about it. And yeah, she's she's she is learning a lot. Um, I kind of like learn some stuff and then I pass it on to her. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So in, uh, back to a serious question about Pinterest, um, is there, what's the algorithm like, is there an algorithm for Pinterest or is there like a minimum participation level that you have to exhibit for Pinterest to start sharing your posts or showing it to other people? Um, uh, I don't so I you, jump you in, need there to... is an algorithm because everything online has an algorithm. It's just a matter of whether it's quote unquote a you know a, an abusive relationship type of algorithm, right? Uh, so with Instagram, you need to have a cadence, and that's a fancy word for saying like a rhythm or a pattern. Instagram it, does does Pinterest require that pattern of activity, or is it a dump and go type of thing? Is it just to clarify the question? You can definitely get away with dump and go because paintable that's exactly what they do they as soon as they've got a thing that they want to drive traffic to they just throw pins at pinterest and then they they leave they're done for the next two weeks you know and then the next thing they want to throw some traffic at they just pull it of pins uh and then they're off so you can definitely get away with um like you know yeah fire and forget um it's because it's a because it's a search engine see instagram and twitter the search the search is not a big part of those platforms. It's more about um, a feed. Pinterest definitely has a feed, but you often will head there in order to look for a specific thing. So you're gonna type it in the search box. So that means that something that's pinned like right at the beginning of Pinterest has a good chance of showing up if it's very relevant to what you search, which means, so it doesn't matter if you're trying to gain some sort of smart feed, like that's, that's not a large component of Pinterest. The algorithm comes into effect into impact with the uh, related images. So you click one image, and then it finds a bunch of similar images that other people have also liked. They saw that image. But Indeed, yeah. Without actually that, clicking the like button, which is important. Right. That's how. That's where boards kind of come into it because that's how it figures out related content. Um, if people are putting the same image in the same board, you know, putting related images in the same board. So it's like if you if you like this image from that board maybe you would enjoy other images from that same board so yeah in that sense there is an algorithm and that's why you want to curate these boards of related images so that when someone likes a particular image someone pins a particular image from a board they'll be recommended and hopefully drive some traffic to your blog or to whatever it is you're trying to drive traffic to it doesn't have to be a blog it could be an art station store it could be uh, your prints could be a print shop. I'm glad I'm going to be trying crypto art. So I'm going to be trying to drive traffic from Pinterest through to Maker's Place. Who knows if that would ever result in sales? But Pinterest is fairly 
simple stuff. You just make some images and throw them up and see what happens. So I might as well give it a shot and see if what it results in. I thought just I... to clear, just oh, to clarify no, from chat real quick. Um, you don't make money directly from Pinterest, right? Even if you have a business account, it's not a revenue generation thing. It's a traffic generation for other areas, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's so that's why it works well with the blogging thing because blogging the articles you also don't make money really from the article itself you're driving traffic to a thing so pinterest and blogging are almost like the same thing but one's for words and the other's for images um i, I thought of something that i was meaning to ask way back in the crypto conversation the maker's place where you have your art the the crypto art that you have for sale is there a way to connect that like if 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 an artist had a personal website that they use as their main traffic funnel destination and they attach the maker's place, the locations of their art on maker's place to their personal website so that they don't have to separate the traffic flows. Oh, you mean sort of like embed? Yeah. Um, I, no, no, not yet. I expect that to be coming because, you know, that's very common. Like, Gumroad, you can do that with Gumroad, can't you? Um, I expect that to be coming. If it, if some, if they're not on it yet, then I'd be ashamed of them, to be honest, because that's something they should definitely be doing for sure. Um, these are these are quite small teams running these platforms. Like when you dig into it, you realise it's like five people, um, and they're really like scaling up very quickly and. Uh, but yeah, um, you can't do that yet, but I should manage it. It's only a matter of time. As long as we're on the follow-up questions um, for the, the crypto thing, are, the, are there other outlets that you have your eye on? Or do you plan on sticking with Maker's Place as the thing? Or are there other avenues that you're looking down as well? Well, because the Ethereum blockchain is so busy, which means that gas fees are so high, uh, if I kind of want to sell anything right now, and also the prices of my art have gone up because you price in Ethereum on the, these platforms. So now my art that was priced at 700 bucks is now priced at 1,300 bucks. Um, and you could pay a transaction fee in order to change the price, but because Ethereum is so busy, the transaction fee to change the price is a lot of money. So I'm kind of like, it's a, you know, it's very, it's stuck basically. Um, Ethereum sales. So I'm going to be looking at um, there's Wax, which is Atomic Hub. They they um, they're based on Wax. So that blockchain is much more scalable than Ethereum is, and they're already making good sales there. Like there's there's a what's it called? It's like Pogs. It's got a name like Pogs. They basically made their own version of Crypto Pogs. Uh, and they're making they're, they're trading like crazy over there. So Wax is definitely alive. There's Ghost Market, which is based on Phantasma blockchain, I think. Um, there's Paras. So I'm going to be trying out all these different platforms. There's um, there's one called OpenSea, which is Ethereum based, but you don't have to pay transaction fees until you make a sale. So you you can just get you can just jump in straight away and only pay if you if you sell. So I'll be trying out all these other platforms while the craziness with Ethereum is going on. Um, and that's probably what I recommend <laughs> anyone who's brand new to it. Um, 
Oh, some someone was in chat, was they causing trouble? Oh, it was a bot. bot. Oh, it was a bot. Oh, yeah, of course it was. They were trying to sell um, Ethereum. It was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's why I'd recommend anyone who's looking to get into it now. Maybe Joby, if you were thinking about it, I would look at some of these other platforms. Maybe not Maker's Place because right now it's going to be inundated with applications. Fees are really high. The only people who are able to sell at the moment are, are the people who are already established. In the future, it'll die down. The, the bubble will burst and things will go back to normal. And then you can try and get in on these platforms, hopefully having built up some cred you know, on the, on the newer places. It'd be more likely to be accepted. Man, it's, this has been a vicious burn. Uh, I know you were saying that you would like to keep it as close to two hours and we're coming up on that. So I don't, and unless Moose, do you have any other follow-up questions? Yeah. So uh, one of the things we missed on uh, early in the conversation was uh, we didn't talk about your tutorials where that was an intermediate oh. before you're uh, switching over to uh, doing the blog thing. So how did tutorials do for you? Like, how are they still doing for you? So the Skillshare was actually a big part of why I switched from streaming to blogging and we kind of skipped it and I forgot about it. It's because, yeah, I released those Skillshare tutorials um, and in the first, because uh, I released the first ones while I was still streaming and they made around $200 a month um, for both those months. Uh, and I thought, that's okay, it's all right, but how do I scale that up to more money? Uh, and I realized like either I need to release more tutorials or I need a bigger audience. So Justin Donaldson has that bigger audience. So when he releases the tutorial, it makes a lot more than $200. Um, so yeah, I decided like, okay, I could, I could try and stack tutorials and slowly grow that into something meaningful, or I could figure out how to, how to direct an audience to them. Um, so that when I release a new tutorial, it, it makes a lot more than that 200 bucks. Um, since I stopped streaming, uh, less traffic has been going to, to them. And so it's slowly crept down to around $50, 50 bucks a month, you know? So that's all internal from Skillshare. That's people, you know, on Skillshare just coming across it and watching it. So it's pretty, yeah, it's not, it's not much, but so, I would say this yeah. month we, we, I put uh, links to skill over to Skillshare in one article, and that that's where I got that extra forty dollars this month, just from sending people over. So my Skillshare inc uh, income will probably start growing again, but not from people watching my tutorials, <laughs> from just from sending people to Skillshare. So uh, just from the small smaller audience that you have not, not that it's small but it's smaller than justin donaldson um and you have two tutorials up how much time did you spend making those tutorials and how much money have you made from them in total so far over those two years uh it's been, it's been i think it's been about 16 wait no, 18 months something like that um They've made, I think it's about $1,200 in total. Um, something like that. I could double check. But yeah, it's definitely over 1000 And how many um, hours of work did you spend making those tutorials? Is that something you can quantify? Yeah. Um, so the first one, I probably spent like 
15 hours because I had to learn how to edit video. I'd have never done it before. <laughs> I didn't know how to, rec- I didn't know how to do the only thing I've done is stream. I'd never, you know, recorded anything. I'd never edited anything. I'd never, yeah, I had to figure out like how to use DaVinci Resolve and cut video up and, and figure out the audio and stuff. So it probably took me like 15 hours and that was a two hour, two hour tutorial. And then the second one was just a one-hour tutorial, if I remember, and that was more like uh, eight hours or something, recording, you know, planning, recording, editing, all that stuff. So these are just single tutorials that you have on Skillshare. They're not like, for some reason, I had it in my head that Skillshare you have to put up courses, like it has to be a series of classes. I don't know why I was thinking that. No, they just want you to put up. Um, it, has to, it has to be at least 20 minutes or something like that. They, they recommend between 20 minutes and like three hours. And you should break it up into sort of bite-sized chunks, like five-minute chunks if you can. That's all they, that's, that's their guidelines. They call them courses so they can feel good about themselves <laughs> right, instead of calling them tutorials. When you have something yeah, on Skillshare, can you put it on other places like yes. Gumroad or, yeah, okay. Yeah, Um that was actually, that's going to be part of the, the long-term plan. So this year, we'll probably be concentrating on more articles to get more traffic, um, affiliate links leading people through to, you know, things they're looking for. Affiliate links to other courses is something that would definitely, because that's what Skillshare is, is affiliate links to other people's courses. But maybe I could talk to Justin uh, and maybe, because I don't know how he's fulfilling his courses, but might be able to, sort out some sort of affiliate thing there. If he doesn't want to write those blog posts, I will happily do it um, and send people that want to learn gouache over to him, um, get a small kickback from him. Um, and then long-term would be to make my own courses, put them on Skillshare, put them on Udemy, put them on ArtStation, put them Gumroad, um, and yeah, send people from the blog to my own courses. That's the long-term goal. But the reason I want to do the blog first is so that I know what to make the courses on. So uh, to quick recap, uh, you can put your uh, videos on Skillshare and other sites as long as the site, as long as the place you put the tutorial isn't free. So you can't put them on YouTube. Though I do know of at least one artist who has his videos for free on YouTube and on Skillshare. <laughs> They're uh, blank minutes to better blanks. Oh, that guy. Um, <laughs> and they're great videos and they're on Skillshare and they're on YouTube. But anyway, uh, are they the same? Are they the, actually, they're not YouTube. They're, literally the they're not excerpts. They're literally exactly the same video. I didn't realize they're, they're, they're the, the same, same video. Yeah. Strange, I like had a wild. trial account with a Skillshare and I watched them there and I was like, yes, it's the exact same video. And it's exactly 10 minutes long. Sorry. I 10 minutes to better blanks. We now have that uh, filled in. Um, <laughs> all right. And as far as the uh, the hourly rate that you got from those uh, uh, tutorials, if anyone wants to do the math at home, it was uh, $1,200 you've made so far, roughly, and 23 hours, roughly. That's about $52 an hour, and that's only going to go up based on the work you've already done, and now everything after that is just increasing. So for people yeah, at home that are good. having a hard time justifying selling your work for more than $20 an hour, there's money to be made that's at considerably higher margins than, you know, selling a uh, commission for a 
uh, a dwarven character's bust for you know eighty dollars. Yeah, there's a there's a number of artists that Moose has been, let's say, chastising for quite a while to like get tutorials made. Uh, I happen to be one of them, and there's this weird thing that my brain does whenever I hear about a successful model that somebody has proven to work is that like well now it's now nobody else can do it not not because it's like unoriginal but just now there's uh there's a limited number of opportunities to do that now it's like it's gone do you have a sense of there being uh a saturation to the market or is this a model your blog to skillshare uh long-term plan is that something that people can access now and you know and still have long-term success from uh i would say definitely absolutely it might not be that skillshare sticks around but you still have your video that you know you still made the course you it's just skillshare is just the platform that you're selling it on um so if Skillshare disappears, people are still going to want to learn. As long as you're making things that stay relevant. Um, so, for example, my courses are photo. Well, my my two classes, they're Photoshop, how to paint in Photoshop. As long as people still want to paint in Photoshop, they're still going to want to watch video tutorials about how to paint in Photoshop. Um, I would say that YouTube is probably YouTube is growing like crazy. Uh, even though it's huge already, it's still taking up, it's taking up a bigger share of the video like every day, you know. So YouTube may push out things like Skillshare, like those sort of bite-sized videos. People might just keep just going back to YouTube for that stuff. But for a bigger thing like Justin's courses, those larger $300 things that go in depth, it's very hard to teach in depth on YouTube because of the way the platform is, you jump between video to video and the way ad revenue works, you kind of want those 15 minute, 10 minute, 15 minute videos. So I think, um, I think, I think this definitely, this stuff has, has legs. Uh, and yeah, they're assets that you own. So at the moment, like I've made my money back, like Moose was saying, I've made my money back the time I invested in making those courses. And now it's just pure, it's just icing on the cake, you know. Um, and I can always I own the I own the assets now, so I could always package them up in a big, nice, you know, bow. If Skillshare goes down, then I can sell them on my own site. I can just rewrite the blog post a little bit instead of it saying go over here to Skillshare to watch these things. Just here they all are on my site. I like, purchase them all as a bundle. Um, I th yeah, I think that it's just uh, teaching is not something that's going to go away, basically. And it's the model, right? So the idea is not that you just make these tutorials and you put them on uh, Gumroad or Skillshare and walk away. That works, though. Uh, you know, Blake, who we had on earlier, did that. Uh, up until recently, Chris had basically done that. But the idea is you funnel the people from the places where they can find you through Google, which is what the, what the blog is for. Google finds the blog and then you put them to the tutorials or the referral links, or you make YouTube videos where it's a giant search engine also, or Pinterest, which is a giant search engine. 
So these are the areas where people can find you. It's not a matter of like a Instagram where you hope people find you and then they stay there. That's not the, that's a that's an island. That's not what you want to work. That's you want to find people that you can funnel to the place that you're get, providing the tutorials. Yeah, and I think how the key the key thing is that those are treadmills. Like if you you make a post on Instagram, if you were to stop, if I stopped posting on Instagram like a year ago, and now like nothing happens on my Instagram account. If I was to stop, I haven't written a single article this month, and the site has grown. If I was to like throughout this whole year, I expect if if I wasn't to write another article at all, I still would expect the site to grow in traffic this year. Um, more people coming to the blog with no extra work done. That's the that's the that's the key difference. Is that once it's an asset that once it's built, it's doing its thing. Um, you'd have to worry about it again. Same with the Skillshare courses. Once they're built and you put them up, they do their thing. You no longer have to participate in selling them. One one more question about the blog. Um, Google and like the search analytics there, it, it treats each of those blog posts as its own unique item, right? Like it doesn't, like Instagram will start punishing you if your posts aren't doing great. So if you have one blog that's not getting that much traction, Google doesn't necessarily take that into account when it's considering the performance of your other blogs. Is that correct? It will, what, what it kind of does is there's this idea of domain authority, which is, um, or site authority. It's how, it's the authority that Google sees your site as having. Now, it's not something that come out and said that they do, but it's, it's basically, it's a, it's how much history that your site has on Google, how, you know, like how the, how people have interacted with it in the past, if you've done any scammy stuff and, basically it's like a it's like a rating that they give you and you definitely grow that rating over time so at the beginning like my site's brand new if i was to write an identical article or almost identical article to someone else whose site is much older and so it's established and it's got authority with google then they would rank above me purely because they have more authority than me um so it's definitely a factor but it's not it's not like if you put out one bad article, that's going to bring all your articles down. Um, it's more that, that just, that just Google's not going to, that's not going to add much to your authority rating, if you know what I mean. Right. So that authority rating, though, is a, um, I don't know, how do I say it? Like a relatively continuous incline. So it, as opposed to it being something that, starts off slowly and then if google doesn't see it taking off fast enough it squashes you down it's just it's an equal opportunity for it to just continue to keep yeah upwards. pretty much if you were to start doing some scammy stuff or if you were to if um you weren't to keep your content very relevant so if you've got articles that link out to things that then disappear off the internet you've got all these broken links in your articles then that Google would look at that and be like, "This this guy doesn't maintain his his writing." So yeah, you you would sort of drop in that case. So it's, it's as long as your your site isn't getting functionally worse, then uh, yeah, they don't punish you exactly. No. So there are a lot of so we've covered like basically three topics. We've covered crypto art, we've covered uh, blogging, and we've covered um, uh, Pinterest. Pinterest, blogging, crypto, yeah. What are the major resources that you learned for each of the uh, uh, 
found for each of those that you would re refer people to if they want to learn more? Or is it all on your uh, blog already? It's not on my blog already. There's definitely, I want to write something about Pinterest. Sleepy did a whole load of research just for our own purposes about how Pinterest works. And I've done my own uh, independent research. So we've got a document and I want to turn that into a Pinterest blog post once we have better results and I can, you know, put screenshots of what we've achieved and stuff. Um, same with blogging. I'd like to do the same. Once we're actually making legit money with the thing, then I'll write articles about how to do it. So I've got some proof that it works and that proof that it makes money. It's not going to be that long. I expect by its one year anniversary, we'll be making about a thousand a month. That's the goal. So that's, that'll be end of June. There's a thousand a month and then end of the year. We don't know. Uh, multiple thousands is the goal. Um, so hopefully this stuff will be up on the site. Same with crypto art. Hopefully stuff will be on eventually. Until then, there's YouTube channels. There's a particular YouTube channels that I really like. Income School for blogging. And then to learn about Pinterest, Anastasia Blogger is really good. She's also a, she's a blogger, but she uses Pinterest to drive her traffic as opposed to Google. Um, I'm going to ask you to spell that out for Joby after the show. Okay, yeah. Yeah, she her channel is really good. It's all about all about Pinterest, and she makes good money again, like twenty, thirty, create you know, ridiculous numbers, twenty, thirty thousand a month. Um, that's Pinterest, and then crypto art is so new that there aren't many channels talking about it. But one is um, Red Mankind, I think, is what his channel is called. He's 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 uh, he's been in it for about six months, I think. He's sold some really, he's got some really cool work. Um, and he's done some really good beginner videos about crypto art. He's done, he, he streams occasionally. Uh, I really like his stuff. But again, the crypto art scene is so fresh that there aren't many resources around. Uh, the resources that do exist kind of assume a certain amount of um, knowledge of how blockchain and crypto works as well. So it's hard to find like beginner level stuff, but yeah, Red R H E double T, mankind. Yeah, is, after uh, the after the show, I'll send you a a message to get <laughs> all of these links. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Ah, oh, man, so fucking cool, <laughs> Chris. Thank you so much for this. Um, just a couple questions to tie it all up in a nice package um if people if you want people to find you and all of the stuff that you're working on where should we send them well uh selfemployedartist.com all one word you know no hyphens or anything um and i've also got nidianlegacy.com is up it's very very small there's a tiny thing happening there i'm hoping to grow it slowly this year um those two websites uh, would be good, and maybe my Twitter, Chris Cant Art. Maybe Twitter. If you like Discord, then we've got um, you go through selfemployedartist.com into the Discord. There's an article talking about Discord, and you can join us in there. Our Discord's badass, so uh, it really is. Yeah, can vouch for that. I feel bad we didn't get to the or um, we get to it. We should have started at the beginning with a little bit of the Nidian legacy because that's such a great project. We're going to have you on again and have you talk about that personal project and follow up on how all of these things have been going. And just one more question for you. Outside of career and art, 
What's one thing that's happening in the world right now that you're excited about? Aside from Joby's uh, Kickstarter. That's, <laughs> I, have, I have been following that. I'm surprised you don't have any higher ticket items. I thought, the, where's the big ticket thing, Joby? Uh, yeah, that's a long story. <laughs> um, I'm going to cheat a little bit, and it's, this is related to crypto again. But when I was digging into NFTs, I came across decentralized finance. And that is amazing. When you, they, these, these different crypto, these different blockchains and crypto, they're not quite currencies. Um, they're kind of like NFTs again. Um, these different projects came around. I, I came across them that are basically emulating different things from the finance world. So like moving money, transferring money from across continents in like seconds for tiny fees. Um, what else is going on? Oh, there's um, stable coins now, which don't fluctuate in value. They're tethered to the value of real currencies. So there's a few US dollar stable coins that they're tethered to the value of the US dollar. Um, and if you, there's one called DAI, that if you hold some DAI on Coinbase, which is a cryptocurrency wallet, if you hold DAI in there, you get 2% annual yield. So you get yearly interest on it. And I don't know how the state of banking in America, but in England, it's very hard to get 2% on a savings account. Yeah, 1%, maybe. Yeah, if you're lucky. I think 0.2 would be hard to find in England at the moment. So to be able to hold US dollar equivalent and earn 2% interest is pretty cool. But on top of that, that I found a platform called Ava, where it's decentralized lending, loaning and borrowing of cryptocurrencies. And you can get 15% yield for currencies that you lend out so if i buy a bunch of doge coin i can uh then go on to ava and lend out that crypto and still make money on it whether or not the lending goes well or bad yeah yes i mean if doge went all the way down then another 15 percent yield on zero is not very good but um the way it works, it depends on supply and demand. If demand is high, the annual yield goes up. If if supply is too high, the annual yield will go down. Um, but yeah, people put up other crypto as collateral, so that if they don't, if they default on the loan, you get their collateral. Um, it's all decentralized. It it's amazing, and it makes me wonder what's going to happen to traditional banking because already bye if bye. I can have two bye bye. <laughs> Especially with the whole, man, the GameStop, Robinhood stocks thing. Right, right. Um, the banks offering such low interest. Um, I'm seriously considering, like, what money should I keep in my bank account? And what, what money should I convert into DAI stablecoin to get 2%? And then perhaps even lend it to other people and get 11%, I think it is, for DAI at the moment. Uh, uh, it just blew, it blew me away. Yeah, the whole world of blockchain and crypto is it's so crazy it's so wild man i'm so excited about it i share your i'm so, i'm happy that was the thing that you <laughs> that you decided to end on because i yeah i get tingles at whenever we think about it um so by gme <laughs> by moose coin um on that note chris i think this is a great place to wrap it up man uh i'm gonna wave goodbye to you and say thank you again this was such a great conversation 
everybody in the chat has fucking loved it. I can't wait to have you on again, man. Yeah, I had fun. Thank you very much. I wonder if I, yeah, I don't remember half of what I've said. Perhaps I was very rambly, but no, it was a, it was a good time. I really enjoyed this. Thanks very much. I will definitely listen to it again myself. I'm sure a lot of other people will, but uh, I'm going to hit end on the record.